You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Hey Kensington, we're here at 3 North Vines to learn a little bit more about a vineyard and what it takes to grow grapes. And today we're going to talk all about the cycle of growth. And once again, we have our friend Christy with us. Welcome. Hi. Christy, can you tell us what it takes for the grape to grow? Like what happens, when does it start? What does that look like? How long does it take? What are the stages all in between? We're out here in a different vineyard than we've been talking in in the previous ones. Um, And you'll notice you don't see a lot here. No, there's nothing. He's <laughs> got, got these little baby little, boys. There's little baby plants. Little baby we are root. standing in the and middle the, of uh, this is the vineyard guys down there. Actually, first week. This is Ooh. its one week birthday here. Okay. Really? Yeah. Happy birthday. So don't step on it. Yeah. Okay. So this is what it looks like at the beginning. It looks like you had a really nice field and you planted some sticks in it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. So at first, it's very um, quiet here in the vineyard. It doesn't look really impressive but and within this first year they're going to grow up the wires are getting prepped to go in right now and um they will make it up to that wire that we were looking at on that trellis before for by the end of the season oh wow okay so that's what is that like growth. two feet three feet? yeah it's good they're gonna they're gonna grow about three three feet okay, with wow. it by 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 fall by fall wow wow okay so it goes from stick to three and a half foot stick <laughs> then what then hopefully next spring we're going to have this, like, you know, toddler, I guess you could think of yeah. it. Or, you know, somebody maybe just getting ready to go to kindergarten. And we're going to be able to put them up on that trellis and start to train them to do what we want. Okay. Which, in the other vineyard, you know, you saw, like, more of a T-shape. This yeah. is going to be more of an umbrella shape. It's going to go yeah. up real high and fall down, yeah. kind of like a willow tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to be training it into that shape for the next year to two years. And then in year three, we get really excited because we can finally let these plants make little great babies. Ooh, ooh. And we get a small okay, harvest. Okay, all right, okay. You want to think of them maybe as like mid-teens at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then yeah. they have that first harvest of fruit. So many human parallels here. <laughs> yeah. And then by year five, we're at like in our 20s, we're rolling along and we're yeah. at full maturity. Making really bad decisions. Exactly. Yeah. No, hopefully they're making good decisions at this point. <laughs> they're well-trained at that point. Oh, that's yes, right, that's right. Well they're great, out in the real world. They've had great parents, yes. you know, training the child up yes. in the way it should go. Is there different types of maintenance throughout the process? Like right now, it's a baby stick in the ground. So like you're not... There's not probably not a lot of maintenance going on right then and there. Well, actually, we're a little we're very hands-on at this stage, kind of like new parents. Okay. We really have to, you know, work on them and tell them what what are the do's and don'ts. Sometimes we might put out a stake if we see somebody kind of off. Love it when someone puts out a stake. For yeah, me. we got to tie them up. I'll do whatever up. they want me. Whatever they want me to do for a stake. Yeah. So there's a lot of different work. It's more hands-on in some ways. It's not as normal as we would do once they're kind of established. Okay. So, you know, we're doing different things those first three years. Christy, that is that is so cool. Um, I can't wait to hear what you have for us next week. Awesome. We'll see you then. Cool. What's happening, Kensington? I got, I got 30 minutes, so buckle up. That's all I want to tell you. I... Uh, I want to tell you that through my career, it actually didn't start in police work. My career started as a paramedic. And uh, when I went to paramedic school at McLaren and I graduated in 1992, uh, I became a police officer and got hired full-time in 93. I remember some great lessons in medic school. 
And I remember them saying that, you know, especially cardiology, when you have a patient that's presenting a, a certain type of symptoms or, in fact, they're in cardiac arrest, there's an algorithm that you have to follow in order to get the best chance of survival. Because as a medic, you want the best chance of survival. And I remember the algorithm type teaching is simply called a process. When you think of algorithms, you think of A, B, C, D. Ultimately, you're trying to get the end result. And in this case, as I mentioned, it's survival. And when you think of a process and why that's so important, when it really happens and it's, and it's true people, that algorithm that you learn in peace is really what's going to happen in chaos. Now, I can't just make survival happen. I don't look at a patient and just say, hey, you, you got to get up. You got to just believe you're going to do well. You can't do that. There's a reason why medics and those that, that treat, whether it's in the hospital or pre-hospital, there's all these different steps. There's assessments and medications and reassessments. There's mechanical things we do. There's electrical things we do. And as a medic, when you get out and you become licensed, there's this kind of this, this what we call a point of entry, a, uh, a validation. And that is your first cardiac arrest, solo. Solo. That means that there's nobody else helping you. There's no FTO. There's no teaching, training, people next to you. It's your cardiac arrest. And then the, 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 the greater one on top of that is your first pediatric cardiac arrest. And so I remember I was... Uh, I was right in the middle of a, a town called Grand Blank, and they put out a pediatric full arrest. It was a, uh, a 10-month-old baby, and the baby stopped breathing, and there was a guy that was on a pole right outside the house from Consumers Energy, and they said that the Consumers Energy guy is doing compressions. That was the dispatch information that I got. So I beat feet there, and in Genesee County, we're police and paramedics. So I'm driving a patrol car. I get in there, and I remember seeing this little baby, uh, about 18 pounds, on the couch. He's doing compressions. And it was this, this, this patient that literally was the same exact patient that I would train on in the training world, but now it's real. And when it comes to babies, when it comes to little people, it's not a bad heart that usually keeps them from breathing and from living, but it's a respiratory issue. And so I turned the baby around, and I got my kid out, and we have what's a little scope called a laryngoscope, and I opened up the mouth, and he cleared the vocal cords. He dropped a little tube in, which is about the size of your pinky. So the bigger you get, the bigger the tube. This was a tiny little tube. I put it right through the vocal cords. I grabbed a little bag, and I start breathing for the baby, still doing compressions, and uh, about five, six minutes after that, I got a heartbeat back. Put him in the back of the rig. We're jumping in the back. I remember going northbound Saginaw Street. And, uh, I, you know, I have one of the other EMTs now just slowly bagging the baby. And I have to get some medications, right? So they don't have big bounding veins. And I got a, 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 a 24-gauge in the back right of the heel. Never forget that. Just like a little teeny vein popped it in there. If the baby went back to cardiac arrest, there's a medication you give. It's epinephrine, one to, uh, to one in, in 10,000, but it's a breakdown. It's 0 0.01 milligrams per kilogram. So you got to take 18 pounds. You got to multiply it by 0.45 kilos, which comes out to about 0 0.08 milligrams of epi, one to 1,000. You got to do that on the fly, going 100 miles an hour all the way to Hurley Hospital. We got to Hurley Hospital. We still had pulses, IV, tube, baby survived. 
I say that because I couldn't just beg the baby to survive. I couldn't just demand the baby survive. That algorithm that I was taught, whether I agreed with it or not, it worked. And since I've been a paramedic and I renew my license this August for my 34th year as a licensed medic, when you think of all the people that I've been able to treat, all the death that I've seen, I realize that everybody out there who's been given a profession, there's probably people in this room that are nurses and doctors and, and maybe even firefighters and medics, cops. I mean, our, our goal is to answer the call in crisis. And when you come up through the ranks, you, you listen to people that have the knowledge and you listen to people that can teach you. And it's not our job to say, wait a second, I don't know if this really does work. No, our job is to listen to the truth, apply it, and result. You and I can do nothing if the end result is what we want without the process. Amen. So I'm going to do two things today in the short time that I'm with you. I'm going to validate what you already do when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. Or I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to validate what you're already doing, or I'm going to challenge you. And I bet the challenge, if you really put it into heart, can save the life of a baby, of a, of, a, of a mom, a dad, can save the life of a friend, can save the life of a business, can save the life of, and you just say what you want. Because I can tell you, when, the, when you, you invest in people whose lives are falling apart, and you put the process in place, and you stay the course, you can't make an addict clean, but you can give the addict a process so they can become clean. And that's what Jeremiah was talking about these last couple weeks. And that's why the, 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 the bumper video you saw, it gives us a realistic idea. Sometimes you just need to see things visually, right? That's why I operate. I'm not a Lego guy. I'm not a build it with instructions guy. If I have extra parts after, I'm feeling like this is a bonus. That ain't me with all that little numbers and all that. That's why if you can't do math, you can still work for the government. I'm living proof. I like to see things. So I brought you something. I brought you something. When you're talking about John 15, and you're talking about what he's telling us, I want to I take to, uh, to heart the realistic idea of what a vine and a branch looks like. It says in John 15, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So that can even be more fruitful. You're already clean because you are, you are the word, and I've spoken it to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain connected to the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. The better word for remain is connected. That's it. You know, the word abide means stay connected. I, I will tell you this. Uh, there's one thing about Swanson. When you're with me and, and we're rolling together, I'm with you. I'm with you. Even when, when, when stupid things happen. I can tell you as the sheriff, I, I learned growing up, you know, I've been with the sheriff's office since I was 18. There's one characteristic of people that I have learned to respect. And there's one characteristic that when it doesn't happen, it cuts deep. And you can't teach it, you can't train it, you either got it or you don't. And I know this one means, uh, means a lot to everybody in here because you know when you got it and you only don't. It's called loyalty. Man, when someone's loyal to you, whew, 
And that's why the Bible talks about in, in law enforcement, there is no greater love than one who lays down their life for another. No greater love. And in law enforcement, that's kind of like our mantra. So that's what abide means, is that you stay connected. That's why Kensington is exploding, because people are staying connected to the church. They're staying connected to the groups. They're, they're finding some ways, they're like, All right, I really, I'm, I'm not really using that, or I don't really apply to that, but this is where I want to go. And so when you think of the, the vine, and you think of the branches, and you think of the gardener, okay, the gardener, the gardener takes care of all this as part of the process. We have a vine. Now, this little green part is what you and I see. It's what you and I see. But what's underneath that is so much bigger. And, and look how long it goes. Look how, 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 how there's little vines coming off, even when you don't see it underground. This is all underground. This is what the gardener takes care of. This is what you need to take care of. But you can't force this to happen without this. You can't just sit there and, and demand it goes your way or my way. Sometimes that's the church. Because they don't like what's growing. They don't think it applies. It doesn't fit the box. It doesn't fit. I know I'm going to get, I may never be invited back here again. So I'm just going to lay it all out there, all right? And if you're saved, I'll see you in heaven. We can talk about it. It doesn't fit the party. It doesn't fit the country. It doesn't fit the rules. It doesn't fit the TV. It doesn't fit Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. It doesn't fit. Like, how, how can that? Listen, our job is not to produce fruit. Our job is to abide. He produces the fruit. See, a lot of times we find ways where we don't think fruit should be there. You ever get so far down in a process and you're like, in the middle of it, you're like, ah, why is this happening? And then you look back, you think, man, I now see. I actually know that this process that I went through, it was for this reason, and I'm so glad I did it. So glad I had to push through it. That's what we're talking about, being connected. There's a process that is very difficult. When you literally intubate a baby, you know, you're sticking a metal blade in the oral cavity of the, blade, of the baby, and you're putting a tube between the vocal cords. I mean, the, you can't even be conscious when that happens, even as an adult. It triggers the gag reflex. And then, of course, someone's pushing on your chest, and that's compressions, and then you're sticking a needle. All this hurts. But what is the purpose? To save a life, to give fruit. And I will tell you, when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, there's nine. And for the next three weeks, you're going to get three, three, and three. I have the privilege, because of my dear love for this church, for the men's ministry, and for my boy, Jeremiah, that I get the first three. But before I get to there, I want to kind of blow your mind, okay? The Bible. Okay? 66 books. Before I get into the scripture, I want you to know, this Bible was written over 1,600 years. From start to finish, it took 1,600 years to compile the Bible. It was written with 40 different authors who spoke three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. 
In fact, they didn't all live together. They were in three different continents in 13 different countries. And you can go buy it at Walmart or Meyer today. When you look at the power of the Word of God and we talk about these fruit of the Spirit, I'm going to tell you the first fruit of the Spirit is the entire essence of the New Testament and the Old. I mean, all the things that happen, all the chronological stories that, that happen, everything in the Bible, it literally comes down to the first fruit of the Spirit, which is actually going to be my last of the three. So I'm going to leave the first one out, but I'm going to call it joy and peace. So it's blank, joy, and peace. Now, when you talk about the fruit, remember, it's the, it's the after effect of all the things that went into harvest. And I got to believe there's people in here that, that you love community gardens, you maybe have a garden, you're a farmer, you understand that this process we talked about, it does take care. Like, you've got to do your part. Could it happen naturally? Yeah, but not so much. When you care for something that's growing, the end result the, the victory at the end is the payoff, just like I said in my opening. So when you think of joy, let's start with that. Joy cannot be confused with happy, okay? Happy is many times situational. I can listen to a song and get instantly happy. I can hear a joke and laugh, and now I'm happy. And how many times does life confuse that in time it erases that happiness, and you go right back to where you are. But I bet you right now, there's somebody in here who knows somebody who's going through the most difficult thing in their life, and they have joy. I, I have a buddy of mine who's going through his fifth bout of cancer. And I told Mark, you know, I, I got saved because my other buddy, Mark, Mark Holland, he didn't survive colon cancer. And at 41, he died. And he told me at his last two days of life, man, go get checked. And, and nine years before the studies tell me to go get checked, I got checked because I promised Mark loyalty. And uh, man, a month later, had I not had that colonoscopy, I wouldn't be here today because I've had four since then. This was seven years ago and he saved my life. I could have easily said, Mark, man, I'm not even 50 yet. I don't need to do this. But when I went and I got a scope at 43, he was part of the process that saved my life. Well, Mark Holland died, and I'm alive because of him. Mark, my other buddy, is going through his fifth bout. And I told him, I said, God forbid I have to go through this, man. If I do, I want to go through it like you. This dude never has a bad day. You know people like that? I just spoke in uh, Muskegon on Monday, and I was talking to a large group of administrative assistants and, and really the ones who run companies, and uh, we were talking about people that meant a lot in their life, and, and I asked everybody to give a, an example and why they are who they are and what this person they're thinking about, just like you are, what they did to make them who they are. And a mother way in the back talked about their three-year-old daughter who died of leukemia 16 years ago. And I said, what did your daughter teach you? She goes, my daughter at three years old taught me joy. I mean, you're talking, and, and I know there's probably some pain in here now that maybe some people are experiencing, and you, you know it all too real. But listen, I got I to gotta be conscious about being joyful even in the storms. Because you can't always expect to have dessert every day. 
cotton candy to fill you up. That's happy stuff. I, I want happiness. I want birthday parties. I like puppy breath. I love sunshine. I love Chick-fil-A. All those things are happy. All right? I'm a normal person, but I want joy to be the vine. See, joy is the, is the process. You've got to choose to be joyful. You've got to be intentional. So when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, the second one, which is the first of the series, ask yourself, do you have joy? If you do, check for validation. If you don't, that's your challenge. Because the next question is, well, how do you get joy? Well, that's why you're here. Joy comes because of number one. We'll get to that. The third one that I get to speak on is peace. Now, I like peace, all right? Uh, because I'm going to give you a little bit of an uh, uh, inside that keeps me calm. And I'm going to also give it to you as, as kind of a guidepost for you. Um, I, I do know that in, in law enforcement or in anything, you, you have to have a direction. If, if I get dispatch information from 911 that there's shots fired or there's a fight or there's an armed robbery in progress, as I'm getting there and I'm hearing dispatch information, I'm putting a plan together. And, and that whole plan is, is to the ultimately, let's bring order to this chaos. That's what we're doing. And peace is order in the chaos. And so I commonly say, Chris, let peace be your compass. I want you to remember that. You can steal this today. Put your name in there. Let peace be your compass. If you're talking to somebody that you know you shouldn't be talking to, you won't have peace. Don't go there. If you find yourself in a situation where you don't have peace, you know, they say a lot of people survive danger because they go with that sixth sense, the gut. You ever meet somebody, especially there's some bright folks in here, Two people meet the same person. You walk away you're like, oh, man, I like that dude. And you're like, I don't like him at all. And you're like, what do you mean, honey? He's a good dude. No, he's an idiot. And then you find out later she was right. That's because they took the rib out of Adam and it was a common sense rib. And they gave it to him. Because sometimes we got to be beat over the head to realize that we're walking in danger. Now, this one's going to hurt, okay? I told you, I may never be back again. You ever get on your phone and go into a, uh, an area in your phone that doesn't get you peace? Yeah, this is where it gets quiet. Let me just assure you this. When you have peace, walk that path. Walk the path. You know, people talk, especially in my life, I, I, I get such a, a privilege and an honor to, uh, to reach millions of people a month. And uh, I, I don't use teleprompters. I don't use scripts. I don't write, have people write my stuff. I, I speak from the heart because I know if I speak from the heart, no matter where I'm at, I can always rely on the truth. I have a peace beyond all understanding. The Bible talks about transcendent peace. We're going to get to that in a second. That peace being your compass. If there's something in your life right now that you don't have peace in, that's where you're bleeding. That's where you need a medic. That's where you need to address the problem. And when you get peace, you will have joy because of number one. And that is love. That's love. 
Now, for the sake of understanding, I want you to know that we're not just talking about, I love you, I love you too, I love you, I love you too, I love you. I mean, I heard loves on the, on the video today. Hey, we just love you guys. We say it a lot, don't we? Say it a lot. Hey, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's kind of like going up to somebody, you're like, hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? You really don't mean it. <laughs> because if you really wanted to find out, then just check somebody. Hey, good, how are you? Well, I'd like to take a few minutes and tell you how I am. What, what, what? It's like an automatic, we say this stuff, right? If you really want to experience love, then when you experience it, you will have joy and you will have peace. See, they're interdependent. Remember I talked about that algorithm for cardiac arrest? And I said, you know, there's a lot of medications, assessment, mechanical assessment. Every time you assess, you're looking at the treatment and the determinant, did it work or did it not? That's what the fruit of the Spirit is after the number one. You're going to learn when you go to Galatians 5 and we talk about all the fruit of the Spirit for the next three weeks, you're going to see every one of them follows love. That's the fruit. And when joy and peace come after it, that is the assessment, are you really loving? The Bible talks about love different than what we talk about it. You may have heard the word agape love. Agape love. That is the highest form of love. That is the ultimate love, agape love. You know, when I talked about, you know, no greater love than one who lays down their life for a, a brother or sister, that is giving your life for someone else. There's a couple of people in society that when I think of that have agape love, I think of people that uh, are adoptive parents, foster parents, organ donors. I mean, that's agape love. That, these are the people that, like, they put action behind it. Sometimes I question if I'm really the one who loves agape style. I also think of people that are difficult to love because they don't look like you. They're in a drive through window somewhere. Their hair may not be what you're used to or how they present. I'm talking to us, church. Maybe they don't go to the same place that we go to or maybe they don't think the same way we do and, and sometimes we find a way to drive a stake between people because they're not fitting in our box instead of doing what we're called to do and the greatest of these is love. And what kind of love? Agape love. Agape love is not convenient. Agape love is not easy, but it's what we're commanded to do. How can you love somebody who does this, this, and this? Because that's what I'm called to do. I got to tell you, I, death teaches me a lot. And, and I know it sounds crazy, but I'd much rather go to a funeral than a wedding. Because funerals always remind me of the reality of life. And when I go to a funeral, I watch everybody. It's, it's really, and they always say, you know, the funeral is not for the dead. It's for the living. It's for the family. And when I go to a funeral, I think to myself, okay, start inventory. Start looking back in your life and, and, and where are we? And, and did you really love the way you're supposed to love? And are you, I mean, all those things come into my mind. And I'm thinking of myself as a medic. I keep using that as an illustration because it's so fitting today. You know, I, I, I've lost 100 times more babies than I've saved. 
I have literally had people grab my, my thighs as their last breath was, was, was breathed and, and then they die. And all of this I have, you know, George Johnson in front of his wife at Kmart at 69 Belsey Road, grabbed my thighs, says, don't let anything happen to me. And I couldn't save him. And he died in front of me. Like these things are like embedded in my head, right? I think to myself, what's going to go on in my mind 30 seconds before I take my last breath? Because none of us have experienced that and stayed there, obviously, because you're here. And if you knew you were going to die, if you knew you are going to die, what's the one thing that you would want to tell somebody who is so close to you? I mean, think about that. If you're there, you know, we think about, you know, sometimes people, you know, what was the last thing they said or what's the last thing to do? That, that whole seconds before you die, it's so critical. You would think that that would be the most important thing said. That would be the most vital information you would share to the world before you took your last breath. In the upper room, Jesus was talking to his 12 homies. And they're all arguing as to who's the first. And you would think, Jesus, of all that he said and did, and knowing what he was going into within 24 hours, would have all the world to talk about. He could talk about the Romans. He could talk about all this. But he talked about one thing. He says, one will leave you, fellas. Serve and love. In fact, he goes, I'm going to show you how to do it. Come here. And what did he do? He washed the feet. Of all the messages a man walking the green mile could have said to the living, he said, I want you to love people. I want you to serve people. I'm going to show you how to do it. You know how powerful this church could be if we loved people who were unlovable, agape style, instead of trying to figure out all the things that people do wrong and all the things are out there, what if you just literally went, hey, listen, you, you can't hurt me, man. I love you unconditional. Do we really mean that when we talk about unconditional love? You know, Jesus came here to change the hearts of people, not the system. He came here to change the hearts of people. He's going to use everybody who desires to be used to change the hearts of people. Not to fix this. Swansea can't fix anything, but I can love people. I can love people. And when he, he sees that, the gardener will prune, direct, water, fertilize. And guess what? You got joy. You got peace. You got energy. I appreciate what they say. I can't turn this off. This is me. My whole life, I don't drink coffee. I've never tasted beer in my life. I don't smoke. But I have a good time. They would sit me next to the quietest person in second grade, Colleen Vogan. Within the first two days, we're both getting in trouble. I can't sit still. I talk too much. My hair sticks up. That's me. Man, he uses me because I want him to. I invite him in. Let me just tell you this. Wherever you are right now, before you leave here, do a gut check, the validation and the challenge part, knowing that if he snips the vine, it produces no fruit. 
That when you don't abide with the gardener, when you're not connected with the gardener, there's no fruit. And you're waking up every day going, why is this happening? How come my life is this? How... You're not connected. You're not connected. There's no loyalty. There's no commitment. You've never confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Christ died for your sins. You've never realized that we're all sinners, that you have to take a step of action. You've got to start the process. And then you can experience agape love and you can give agape love. Then with that comes joy, peace, and the other six, I can't talk about it, but I really want to. That's what we want you to do. And, and that's the message today. But I want to explain to you the purpose and the procedure, the process. And, and I, can, I can share this with you because it's not easy. And, and in a few minutes, we're going to blow the doors off this church by a, a great closing song. And I even told the drummer of which I drum, I said, make sure you amp it up just a little bit. More fills, more bass. I want you to leave here like when they see you at Speedway, they're like, call 911 because this person looks psychotic. And you're like, I ain't psychotic. I got a God they love. I love you. I'm going to buy this for this person. What do you need? I want to see that. I would not recommend washing a stranger's feet without consent. And if you do, don't blame Swanson. Don't blame me. But you know what you need to do. And I'm going to tell you, I, I, when, I, uh, when I grew up, I was a non-athlete, and I grew up as a non-athlete, but I watched other people get the benefits of all the things that athleticism bring. They competed. They were in stages. They were under the lights. They were in stadiums, and I was a late bloomer. I really didn't start competing until uh, I, uh, I was 27 years old, and I uh, started with bodybuilding shows, and, and then I went into marathons, and in 2007, I did my first Ironman. And an Ironman is 2.4-mile swim, 112 on a bike, and then a marathon, 26.2. And uh, I, I did it because I was challenged by a guy, a guy named Dr. Jansen. He said, man, I just came back from the 06 Ironman, and, and it was down in Florida. And, and I'm going to tell you, I can give any drug on the planet as a doctor, but I could not get the feeling of when you cross the finish line and they say your name and that you're an Ironman. He goes, I can't reproduce that. The only way to produce that is to go through the process of the Iron Man, and he planted a seed, and I wanted it, so I did my first Iron Man, and that was Panama City in Florida, and, and that was so exhilarating, because after 14 hours, 11 minutes, man, I crossed the finish line, and Chris Swanson from Davidson, Michigan, you're an Iron Man, and right into the ER I went, <laughs> IVs, bear blankets, I'm like, this is so good. My wife is so scared, I'm going to do it again in 09. And I did Louisville. And I get done at Louisville, and, and I remember just finishing, and they say, Chris Watson from Davidson, you're an Iron Man. I remember in the ER tent there, I'm laying there with the IVs. And I remember my buddy who's there, and he didn't want to be seen, and there was like 300 people and he's like, Swanson. I look, I'm like, Judge. He's a judge, but he told me not to tell you. Judge Godola. He's like, Judge. He goes, I won't tell if you won't tell. I loved it so much. I did Florida again. I did Florida Ironman number three, and 
I get down and, Chris Swanson, you're an Iron Man. And right into the ER I went, three for three. But I'm still alive. 2014, Iron Man number four, Wisconsin. And, uh, man, I, I wasn't prepared. There's hills in Madison. I, 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 I wasn't ready. The process that I thought I knew, I, I didn't follow the whole process. I was too heavy going into it. I didn't train on hills. I tried to figure out how to do my own vine. I finished, but with only 26 minutes to go. You start at 7 a.m. and you better be done by midnight or nothing, nothing you've done to prepare for that moment counts because you do not qualify. Do not qualify. I remember the last 13.1 miles of the run. Started at 7. It's almost 10 o'clock. I got another half marathon to go. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And, and of course, my family's there. And I start walking. And I hear these little footsteps behind me. And my wife, who has never run more than three miles in her life, ran 13.1 miles with me to the finish. Agape love. Ironman number five is September 16th in Cambridge, Maryland. And, and, and this morning before I came here, I was at a 130-degree dry heat cycle for, for four cycles. I have six more tonight at 9 o'clock, and I'm sweating. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this church. I'm thinking about this message because God has put it in me to use examples of my life to encourage other people. And maybe it's law enforcement, maybe it's politics, maybe it's being a medic, maybe it's being a dad, maybe it's being a husband, maybe it's being a friend, maybe it's being a, a, a cop. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to tell you this. You've got the same thing I've got. You've got experiences. You've got the ability to show agape love and to finish the race. So in the end, they call out your name. And with that comes an eternal glory. And the Bible says, be anxious about nothing, but I'll give you peace that transcends all understanding. You can't even conceive it. And in the end, when the Bible says in John 15, 17, there's only one thing I need you to do, Kensington. This is my command. Love each other. Can you do that? Can you do that? It's worth it. It's worth it. Because one day, I know it ain't going to be in Maryland, and I'm going to hear it. It won't be in Florida twice. It won't be in Wisconsin. It won't be in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. One day, that moment's going to come for you and I. And a record of our life is going to be looked at. And the fruit, because it comes from the Spirit, that comes with a commitment to abide, to connect with the gardener, was made and people's lives are transformed. And he says, Chris Watson, you're an Iron Man. Go love, church. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.